Good morning, everyone. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. We had jumped ahead a few weeks ago, so this will kind of wrap up our study of the book of Philippians, and we will move on to what God has for us next. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. One of the things that I am grateful for that I consider a tremendous privilege is um, the fact that part of the responsibilities of my job description is to study the scriptures and to prepare content and material for the congregation Sunday morning or other various uh, means of study. And, and, and I did not realize just how much this would be a, such a transformative journey of my own. It's one of the primary means of grace in my life. And, and sometimes uh, I, I study and I gain a new insight. I am excited about it, or I'm looking forward to maybe this bit of the content will help someone or bless someone. But then there are those weeks when I open the scriptures and I have to contend with my hypocrisy every single day. And, and I would like to maybe call someone else to cover this particular passage of scripture. If we were more topical, I would just skip those passages and talk about the things that excite me or I think I do well. But because we're committed to taking a journey through uh, his story, their story, to understand our story and my story, we can't skip things. So this is uh, one of those topics of which I will confess from the very beginning Uh, that I feel like quite a hypocrite being the one talking about it. However, Paul has some powerful insights of, uh, and, and some, and some, um, some wisdom for us whenever we are facing the issue of contentment. So our idea, the principle that we want to look at from the scripture this morning is simply this contentment is the fruit of acting in agreement with the wisdom of my inner life rather than controlling the circumstances of my external life. Contentment is the fruit of acting in agreement with the wisdom of my inner life, rather than controlling the circumstances of my external life. So the question is this morning, you saw it on the uh, sermon bumper, are you content? Any fans of the far side out here? I was so disappointed because at last minute it dawned on me, one of my favorite Farside cartoons is, is the one where there's a luxurious home and uh, one character is sitting in front of the television and the characters, of course, are cows. This is a cow that has made it to the pinnacle of his existence. He owns his own home, his television set, and, his, and, his, and the female cow, the wife, is sitting by the... Uh, 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 the, the big bay window and she has a martini in her hand and pearls around her neck and she's talking to the cow husband and she says I am not content and I thought about that all week long when, when, when I thought about this I so desperately wanted to share that with you however knowing that a small per- portion of the population appreciates Gary Larson I kept from it but that was the imagery in my head is this cow that has everything the pinnacle of existence and she still can't find contentment And so, like Larson often does, it's a goofy way of expressing a profound wisdom. Those of us who think chasing external satisfaction for contentment, we need someone to remind us that strategy will never work. If we can't learn right now to settle into those higher spiritual truths, that higher revelation of what it means to be the place where God dwells, 
and understand that contentment flows from within, we will never actually make it. But again, I have to confess to you that for most of my life, maybe all of my life, the, narr the narrative in my mind, if it is not consciously, if I'm not consciously aware of the narrative, if I'm not making a choice to redirect the narrative, the narrative in my mind, my default mode, is absolutely ruled by the tyranny of discontentment. It's, it's, it's where my unchecked narrative goes continuously. And for me, it's more than just being discontent and having a bad day. For me personally, discontentment is often the first step in a spiral of anger, anxiety, and depression. Most of the time. And I've struggled with this most of my life. Of course, there's comparison to others all worked into that. My own self-loathing uh, self and frustrations with myself, my own failure, not being internally who I try to project externally. All of that flows from this deception of discontentment that I allow to dominate my life. And it wasn't until recently that I realized content, discontentment, like everything else, doesn't have to be an enemy. It, I could step back and say, in God's good universe that's been reconciled to himself through the mysterious work of his son, everything in this life is working for me, not against me. That maybe as I trust the Savior who says, all things will work together for your good because I've called you and I intend to, to work with you until you are conformed to the image of the Son. Maybe that means even my struggle with discontentment is something that is useful in his redemptive hands. So then I've realized recently that discontentment can be an awareness of an invitation to redirect the focus of my inner life. And most of the time, I don't realize when my internal life or my soul has gone adrift until I experience the negative emotional frustration from discontentment. And then I realize, wait a minute, my issue isn't the issue of discontentment today. It began with three days ago when my soul went adrift and I fell asleep at the will and discontentment came in and, 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 and is here to wake me up. Because I've come to believe that contentment flourishes if we just simply learn to weed out the sources of our discontent. I don't believe that contentment is a discipline. It's a fruit. You can't like force yourself. You can't find the seminar or the book that gives you the three keys to living a contented life. And the reason why you can't find that is like everything else in this uh, uh, self-improvement racket, it's because you need to understand contentment is already in your soul. What has happened is it's become suppressed by all the other narratives. You simply need to brush away those narratives and realize, there you are. You've been there all along. That contentment that I sought for externally was always resting asleep in my own soul. So if we would brush away those narratives of discontent, we, we, we will experience contentment not as a discipline, but as a fruit. It is fruit born from choosing to live in alignment with the wisdom of Christ in me, the hope of glory. 
So let's turn to Philippians chapter four. We're gonna look at verses 10 through 14. For those of you who have been inspired to win polo tournaments and hockey games because of this verse, I don't wanna take away its inspiration to you in your athletic endeavors. However, there aren't any scriptures that were written primarily to motivate us to win games. It's fine if we find it that way. So we're gonna look at a familiar verse, but let's recontextualize it in, 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 the, in the context in which Paul's talking about it. You'll be very familiar with it. You probably have t-shirts and bumper stickers and coffee mugs with this passage on it. I hope that tomorrow morning when you reach for that coffee mug, you might think a little differently about it. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 14. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And what he is, without a doubt, if you remember, it's kind of the references we've made to the background story of Philippians. He is referring to a financial gift to meet his immediate material needs. That's the context in which he's been discussing this reality. Uh, you, you were in fact concerned about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. Verse 11, I don't say this out of need. And it's very important for Paul here. You can see, I am not talking about how helpful your financial gift as a way of getting you to give me more financial gifts. That's not what I'm doing here. He's trying to make a larger point. And so he emphasizes, I don't say this out of need. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Boy, wouldn't that be liberating? Most of my life of reading this verse, that was completely foreign to me. How could that possibly be true? That I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Verse 12, I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. At any, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. The secret, that's what we're all here for, secret keys to a successful living, your best life now. So what's the secret? I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. What's your secret, Paul? What's this? I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. The secret is this. I have learned that I can do all things, all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul is directly tying his ability to rest in contentment with the reality of the revelation of Christ within him. And as he's learned from that place, he says, this is the secret. Because I'm so satisfied there in that place, I have learned contentment and it doesn't matter what my outer circumstances are. I may be in need, I may be, have plenty. I may have a full belly, I may be hungry. But nonetheless, whatever the challenges of my circumstance or my body might be facing, I'm content because I've learned a secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's look at the two verses I've highlighted back to back. Philippians 11b and verse 13. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. 
I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So a couple of quick questions for interpretive sake. Who's him? Christ. In fact, if you read other translations, they've kind of done the work for you and they've taken the word him out because they were afraid that we would get confused and they've actually translated and put the word Christ in there for you. I knew all things through him who strengthens me. And so if him is Christ, then the next very important question is this, where is Christ? In me, the hope of glory. I can do all things through the strength that already resides in me as the hope of glory, which means it does not matter. You may deny me food, you may imprison my body, you may shackle my hands, and yet you cannot take away the liberation that I possess because I understand that I am the dwelling place of God and the source of all strength is not external, it's not out there, it already resides right within me, right within my soul. You know, this is, this idea that we've looked at quite a lot because it comes up a lot in Paul's epistles. This idea is even more uh, viscerally described in Galatians 2.20, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. Any of you, if you're a real evangelical, then you know what a topical memory system is. Anybody ever have one of those? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. We'll have to talk to the bookstore people. So topical memory system is a system, systematic approach to scripture memory. I was really into, especially in my late 20s, early 30s. And uh, every time I read this verse, I just, it re reminds me of it. Because the very first verse you're going to learn in the topical memory system, you have a topic, a verse, and then you have to, you know, there's a system for how you repeat these things. And the first set of topics is Christ the center. And the very first passage that you have to memorize is Galatians 2.20, which I find it interesting that the navigators who, who are a, a stellar example of a solid evangelical institution, they recognize that the starting place for growing in our faith, the starting place for the scriptures that we should memorize is this foundational reality, Galatians 2.20, because if you don't get this right, then your faith becomes a stagnant religion full of nothing but obligatory practices to try to become a better person. But if you understand this reality, you understand we're talking about something vastly different than self-improvement. We're talking about the revelation of God found not in the stars, but right here inside me. So Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul has this revelation that at the core center of who I am is a revelation of love. Who, where I began as my understanding of my self concept is not Paul the Pharisee, 
Paul the persecutor or Paul the preacher. I begin with one who has died and whose life is now imitated by the Christ who loved me so much that he gave himself for me. Can you imagine what would happen to your life if your self-concept begins with, I am the one that Jesus loves. I am the one in whom God has chosen to take up residence. Because this is what Paul did. And he recognized because of that, there was something way more about him than what he understood before and what you and I might see when we looked at him. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for for me. So contentment grows from meditating and affirming the Christ, not I revelation. Remember, religious people, the options are uh, not Christ, but I. Then there is the I and Christ, which is kind of, you know, Christ is an afterthought tucked into the rest of the of my life because I want to make sure that if I get, you know, in some kind of final destination scenario and get hit by a bus or something that I'll fly to heaven with him. And that's kind of the extent of kind of a lot of kind of popular Christianity's faith in Christ. It oftentimes doesn't get any deeper than that. Then there's the miserable religious people and they are Christ and I. Yes, I see there's something more than just going to heaven. So I am going to work really hard to do what I can to conform my personality to that which would please Christ. So we buy the books, go to the seminars, go to the prayer lines, and we get on that rabbit wheel of Christian self-improvement. But then there's another revelation, which is Christ, not I, where I learn to be content and to rest and let the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of Christ in me, work so deeply that he rearranges those deepest places of fear, doubt, insecurity, and bitterness and transforms me into a person who begins to bear the fruit of Christ, not because of discipline, because we know an apple tree is not consciously trying to pop an apple out of the branch. It's just resting in the soil in which it's planted. And if we could learn to rest in the soil of love in which we were planted and really believe that and be secure in that, we would find that that soil would nourish the roots and that what would happen is the fruit of Christ would just be manifest in our lives, whether we're striving for it or not. But that comes from living from that revelation. Christ, not I. Everything that you will need and all that you aspire to be is already in you because of Christ. You are a unique expression of Christ in your world for such a time as this. But do you believe it? I mean, it's a reality. I can state it. But if you don't believe it, then it seriously impacts the quality of your spiritual life. In the same way, if you were committed to remaining dry and I told you it was raining outside, you should get an umbrella or stay in the building until the rain is over and you just choose not to believe, you're still gonna get soaking wet when you walk outside. So it's not enough to affirm that on coffee mugs and be inspired in a moment. You've gotta believe that reality. 
that you are a unique expression. And I almost put the word, but I didn't want to be misunderstood and called the H word, uh, heretic. Um, But uh, you might say you are a unique incarnation of Christ in your world and in your place for such a time as this. But it's not enough to hat tip that sentiment. It has to go sound so deep that it really is your reflective understanding of your own identity. There are so many words that people throw around for it, but living from your highest self, your truest identity, your life that is hidden with Christ who lives in you as the hope of glory is the only path to resting in true contentment. And Paul celebrates this in Philippians and in Galatians 2. So then the question becomes, okay, if that is true, how do I align myself with that truth? Now, this is critical because we don't pursue spiritual disciplines as a means of simply self-improvement. We are pursuing spiritual disciplines because we recognize, as Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, not the renewing of your habits, the renewing of your mind. You can renew your habits and never renew your mind and you'll just come up with another idol to run to. One that's more acceptable maybe. But you won't be transformed. Paul says the key to experiencing that transformation is being willing to have our mind renewed. Renewed with what? Renewed with the truth. Or another way of saying that to actually align my thoughts and emotions to the truth. So when I encourage you for spiritual disciplines, it's not so that you're a better person. It's so that you can be equipped to align your mind with the truth. So I want to end today by talking about six practices that have helped me in this pursuit of learning how to rest in the contentment that I already have because Christ has taken residence in my soul. And some of them you may like, some of them you may not. My goal here is to offer you six and in hopes that you will choose one to maybe explore. Some of them you may already explore those and you can affirm their validity. And some of you might say, I can't believe he, did, he left this off the list. I would love to hear that. If we leave something off the list, please let me know what's working for you that I might not have thought of because this is how the body of Christ, we mutually submit to one another and mutually learn from one another. I don't presume that I'm the expert in the room here because my life has been radically shaped because of this community and because I'm looking at multiple faces that at some point or another have been the face of God to me as they have entered into my life and helped me and supported me and taught me practices that allow my mind to remain free. So here are a few. Number one, Practice grounding gratitude. Now, we hear gratitude all the time, but of course, uh, if you're a public speaker, you got to do something to market yourself as unique. So I added the word grounding. Very clever. Grounding gratitude. But the reason why I said that is this. There is gratitude that is lip service and feels silly. And then there are moments of gratitude that I choose to enter into that actually ground me in reality. 
And those gratitude practices aren't silly things that I do in 30 seconds. Those gratitude practices allow me to stand on the precipice of all time and time again. I'm not talking about the gratitude simply for the rose bush in the garden. I'm talking about the gratitude that you feel that consumes your soul when you stand before the Grand Canyon or when you stand in the Rocky Mountains or whenever you stand before the ocean. I'm talking those moments have to be increased in our lives. So grounding gratitude, take a moment to be grateful for something. And yes, I'm gonna say it this way. What in your life is amazing? There is something And it may be harder for some of us than others because we've gone to sleep to the amazement in our lives and we need to be roused from our lethargy. I understand that because I've been in that place many times myself, but I'm not just saying, you know, thank you for arms and legs and and 10 fingers and 10 toes and on and on it goes. I don't mean, that's fine. I mean, I'm glad I've got feet and all that kind of stuff, but... I am talking about something beyond that. I'm talking about where you're taking a moment that it might be something in your life none of us can see but you. But what about your life right now, this moment? What's amazing about your life? Does that even erupt in your mind right now as I ask the question? Or are you stumped? Are you straining? Are you you looking for the answer? This is a habit that can become more natural to you if you're willing to practice it. But we should all be so attuned to the goodness of God in our life that when someone says, what's amazing about your life, we can say, it's this. And and in the midst of it, we may be in one of the darkest places. Our circumstances might not be what what we want them to be. But nonetheless, if the grace of God is in our life, there is something amazing. Remember, The sources of our discontentment may be true. I'm not talking about denying those things. They may be true, but they are not the truth. There's something larger than the true things about our discontentment. There's a larger narrative of truth that says contentment is the foundation of our soul because God's grace is amazing. Gratuitous grace. Number two. Practice awareness of your thoughts and words. Practice awareness. I mean, really, think about your own life. How many times have you woke up in a circumstance of anxiety, despair, depression, or maybe you've just went on hiatus and engaged in your favorite addictive sin for days on end? And at the end of that, then you just kind of wake up and you think, how did I get here? It happened before the emotional battle was raging. It happened way before that, whenever an undiscerned narrative started taking place in our head and we didn't discern it, we didn't discipline it, we just yielded to it. And that narrative that's filled with disappointment, discontent, frustration, it just kept growing and it kept growing until all of a sudden one day, that is all that you could see in your life. 
are the reasons for your despair, your discontentment, your frustration, because you didn't pay attention to the narrative, so it lulled you to sleep and it took over. So the best practice that we can engage in to arm ourselves against that is practice being aware of your thoughts and words. Whatever means of discipline works for you, we have to have a moment of review, a moment of uh, examine in which we look at and we acknowledge the thoughts and the words that are dominating the narrative in our mind. My friends, nothing is 100% one thing. Acknowledge the negative while also affirming the positive. What we're talking about is redemptive positivity, not toxic positivity that says just suppress, don't think about the negative things, don't give voice to your anger, disappointment, frustration, and rejection. Pretend that doesn't exist and just say happy things. That's not what I'm talking about. That will also make mess of your life and make you intolerable to be around, especially if I'm suffering. I'm not talking about toxic positivity. I'm talking about redemptive positivity that says it doesn't matter how dark these things are. The God of redemption has chosen to make his home in me. Therefore, there there is redemption to be seen in this circumstance somewhere. Holy Spirit, right now, my emotions are such I'm too blind to see it. But will you show me? and begin to practice redemptive positivity. Nothing is 100% negative or positive. Because my friends, what you think and speak the most will be what shows up in your life. What you think and speak the most will be what shows up in your life. So it's critical that you are aware of what you were thinking and speaking the most. One of the ways to do this is I would challenge you. And if you're gutsy, you can ask someone you're living with to challenge you. But I got to tell you, be be cautious with this one. Your heart's got to be in the right place because they may take you up on it. But I would challenge you to challenge all your statements that go like this. All blank are blank or they always do blank. All men are pigs. Okay. All women are insensitive. Uh, they always only take care of themselves first. They always only, uh, they're always going to react in, in anger whenever I bring up something that frustrates them. Whatever it may be, you, we all have, they always do this kind of statements in our life. You've got to pay attention to those. Because if you continue to indulge those statements, you will continue to see that show up in your life time and time and time again. What you think about and say the most is what you're going to see showing up in your life. However, when you reframe the things you're looking at, they will begin to change. If you're willing to challenge your all statements, is it really true that the thing you might say when you're frustrated about your partner is that they always pop? Whatever that is, can you take that statement, write it down in a notebook, look at it, and then can you write a different sentence that challenges that narrative? Not one that isn't, that's pretend. I'm saying do the hard work of seeing the redemption in your partner, the redemption in your children, the redemption in your job and your boss and your coworkers. Can you find that redemption and can you challenge that always statement with something else called the truth? 
It's always better to live in truth than to live in the deception of our own narratives, even if they seem true. And so you've got to challenge those statements. You've got to become aware of your thoughts and your words because if you will reframe the things you're looking at, they will begin to change. And different things you will start to notice in your life. Now, oh, never mind. Uh, number three, <laughs> practice joy by pursuing little joys. Your life doesn't have to radically change in a moment because of some experience or piece of information or, or whatever. Begin the discipline of pursuing little joys. Be aware of what they are. You all have them. I had them too, but I had convinced myself at one point that there was no joy in my life. And so I forced myself to open up a journal and I began to write things that I really enjoyed and it was kind of silly at first because the first thing on my list, the first thing that came to mind was I like going to Greasy Spoon Diners by myself, eating breakfast, drinking coffee, and reading whatever the heck I want. It doesn't even have to be productive. I wrote that down and some other things. And I realized I've got to pursue that practice more. I don't know why I enjoy that, but I do enjoy that. But if I proactively put that in my life, even when I'm grumpy, it starts to alter the atmosphere of my heart because I've recognized a small joy that costs very little that I can engage in. And as I made the list, the majority of those joys were free. Very few things were on that list that cost money and nothing was on that list that cost much money. So practice joy by pursuing little joys. What do you enjoy doing with your partner? What's a thing you guys, is it jigsaw puzzles? Is it looking at the leaves? What, whatever it is, name it. It sounds silly, but if you write it down on the list, you, you will more frequently think to pursue those activities. Even when you're in a place where communication seems nearly impossible. Take a deep breath. Trust God to take you through the season and keep pursuing the little joys, the little moments. Take an awe walk. That's a little awkward to say. A-W-E. What I mean is, yes, I'm sure moving around will do your body some good no matter what. But sometimes taking a walk is only a way to rehearse my anxiety. I just walk, but I continue thinking about all the things that are causing me displeasure or stress or frustration. I am talking about a conscious walk where your goal is, I'm gonna go on this walk and I'm gonna look for something that will cause me a little moment of awe. Maybe it's a flower, maybe it's a tree, maybe it's running into someone else, but if you start to look for awe, that childlike wonder in your soul that's asleep will wake up. And Jesus said something like, you kind of got to be like a child to enter into the kingdom of God. So pursue moments of awe. Go on an awe walk where I'm going to walk and I'm going to be consciously looking for something that gives me a sense of awe. Be intentional about focusing more on simple pleasures than what you do not have. Because I promise you, they are flourishing all around you. 
But if you get distracted or if you fall asleep to them, it'll be as if they're not present at all. So we recognize the spirituality of simple pleasures. And we recognize that the grace and love of Christ is here in these things as well. So all walk, list your simple pleasures. Be more intentional on focusing on those things. Four, identify things about yourself that make you happy. Try this one on for size. Really darn hard to do. Instead of criticizing yourself, ask yourself, what do I do right? What am I good at? What is likable about me? When is the last time you took inventory on those parts of your soul or your character that is likable, that you do well? When we had our um, group this past year, we had the privilege of, of uh, walking with uh, Sean and uh, Mike and Shauna Carnahan. And um, I really love watching the way they navigate group leadership, but Mike really threw a fast one on us. Because if we would have gotten together and we would have said, okay, everybody tell about the, the sin you struggle with, we all could have answered that pretty easy. Well, what's frustrating about your life? He asked the question, okay, everybody go around the room and share what went well. What was your win this week? crickets so much so that on the way driving in I would feel anxiety because I realized he's going to ask that stupid question and I still don't have one so then like Jen and I would strategize in the car because it was such a but you know once we got engaged in the discipline we always found it but until someone was in my life that I knew every other week was going to look me in the eye and say what was your win this week I would have said, there are no wins in my life. But when someone asked me that, all of a sudden it reframed the way we started evaluating our week or even the past weekend. And we realized, man, there's a lot more good going on than we tend to realize. It's so easy to get wrapped into that other narrative. So what's good about me? Then, if you so desire, take the next step and identify the things about others that make you happy, particularly the ones you're struggling with. Instead of criticizing them, ask what is good about this person? What do I love about them? What do I admire about them? Consider maybe even telling them you appreciate them. When you're frustrated about things that could be true, be sure to include these observations about them in the narrative you're telling yourself. It is so easy to wrap up, say, with the people that you're most familiar with, with your circle, to get sidetracked on a point of frustration to where that's just all you see about them. Well, that observation may be true, but you've expanded the observation and you've made the narrative a lie because it's not the whole truth. So fine, voice your frustrations before God or before someone in private, but also recognize what is redemptive about them and voice those as well to contextualize how you're processing your frustration. And finally, and this might be the most powerful one of all, affirm providence. Affirm providence. Now, providence is not a word 
that we talk about much. It's kind of gone out of style, out of fashion. I don't hear a lot of groups talking about that. Most of the time, I encounter that word whenever I read books on uh, spirituality, Off, most of, and oftentimes written from people outside of my tradition. Uh, they may be Eastern Orthodox or Catholic or even Anglican, and they'll talk about this idea of God's providence, which just says that in some mysterious way that I don't understand, God is in control of this. Now, there is a version of providence that exists among some Christian circles, and if it comforts you, then ignore what I say, because I don't want to rob anyone from some source of comfort. But it's this idea of sovereignty. And I really hate that we move from providence, which is this mysterious care that God gives over the world, to sovereignty, which is about a position of power and authority and control. And, and, and in that sense, some people believe that God's sovereignty means he's in charge of everything from the left turn of an earthworm to the flutter of a butterfly's wings. I think that gets complicated because it turns into a sort of Christian fatalism that can rob people of joy. If it doesn't rob you of joy, great. I'm just acknowledging there are a lot of us that have been robbed by joy by that kind of fatalism. I'm not talking about fatalism. We can't define God's control in such a way that it removes all mystery out of life. And once we find an answer that takes away mystery, then we are probably in error. Because that's not the promise that we will never have unanswered questions or that we'll be robbed from the challenge of mystery. But it does mean that I am willing to trust that God's tender care is dominant over my life. That it really is true that whatever happens will be used by God's mercy to be for my good of conforming me to the image of the Son. And maybe you have to do this on blind faith. And if you do, that's okay. I just encourage you to try it. Pick three weeks and say from here to here, I'm gonna live as if this were true, even though there's a rational part of my brain telling me that this is a childish experience. Assume that God is at work in your journey and he is working in every detail that led you up to this point. That way you're free of constantly going over, what if I've done this different, if I've done that different? Look, the God who loves you could have sent an angel to say, don't do that if it was really gonna ruin your life. If he didn't do that, then you have to trust that even though you might not be able to see it, he was at work in all those choices and details that led you up to this very point right now. He was there, he was in them. Can you trust his providence in that? Now, I'm not saying it doesn't mean that you don't pursue change, but here's the key difference. You are gonna pursue change in order to evolve in who you are, not to fix who you are. That's why I hate the term self-improvement. Think it's a mistake. I've been replacing it personally with self-expansion. But what I mean by that is that self where Christ lives in me, the hope of glory, I just want that to expand. I don't wanna improve on the weakness of my ego. That vision is too small, but I do want the truth and the beauty and the magnificence that is in me because of Christ to expand and come to characterize more of my life. So yes, we pursue change, but we do that in order to expand the revelation of Christ in us, not to fix our ego or make us a better person. I think there's no better place to start than the full expression of the serenity prayer. 
If you graduated high school, you probably have something trinket that has this prayer on it in its, in its truncated form. If you're curious about growing in your assumption of God's good providence over your life, you could do worse than to start every day with this prayer for the next 30 days. Sorry, you know I like re repetition. It's gone from 100 to 30 though. So I mean, a little better. So for the next 30 days, start your day with this. It's here in your notes. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. That's usually where it ends, but I love the second half. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, taking this world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next, amen. Now, you know I'm a death coach, so this might not be for you. But you know what? It is so much less intimidating. Instead of praying, God, I just want to have, I, I want to appreciate life all that I can, and I want to have all the joy that I ought to be having because of your goodness. I, I love this prayer. Just make me reasonably happy. <laughs> and I got to tell you, at 50, that's a pretty good goal to me. I mean, honestly, the old other one just, exhaust me. Lord, I just want to be reasonably happy with you in this life because there's a recognition that there's the presence of brokenness and darkness in this life that will always bring a little sorrow into the joy of those who can perceive it. And it should. Otherwise, we'll become toxic, positive people who have no empathy for the suffering of others. So we don't want to be supremely happy in this life because we always want to be aware of the woundedness and the suffering around us so that we can be an extension of healing. But we don't want that narrative to then consume our hearts so that all we have is gloom. Great balance, isn't it? Lord, just make me reasonably happy, I pray. So as you stand and we get ready for common communion, we're gonna take common communion this morning, which means we're gonna come through from each corner on the outside and this corner right over here. And um, I don't think there's anybody behind you, Shem, so I guess you're the lead guy. And um, just come through and take the elements. The only thing that we're gonna do different, we just ask that you carry the elements back to your seat. And when we finish the reflective worship, then I will come back up and we will take the elements together at the same time since it's the first Sunday of the month. But as you do, as you take those elements, as you walk back to your seat, as you are entering into some space where we try to create for reflective thought, I ask you two questions to consider. Number one, right now today and in this current season of your life, are you honoring who Christ is in you? Or are you belittling who Christ is in you by focusing on the narrative of the weakness of your own ego? Will you pull out of that and begin to honor who Christ is in you? Not as simple placating positive self-affirmation, but as an acknowledgement of the truth. You cannot continue a narrative of belittling the place where God has chosen to make his home. It's not your right to do that anymore because now you're his home. Secondly, 
as you look over this list of six practices, what's the one that the Spirit might be beckoning you to put into practice in your life this afternoon?